Well, imagine uh, for a moment a story of two cities. One of the cities is called Betzel, and one of them is called Alcoma. Uh, in one of these cities, a tragic murder has taken place. And so an uh, investigation is set up by the chief of police in Betzel. And to make this investigation is- interesting, uh, the, the inspector has to go between the two cities pretty frequently. Uh, and uh, both these cities are vastly different. Uh, the city of Betzel uh, is a grimy, grey city with tired buildings and worn-out people, whereas the city of Alcoma is more like a modern-day London or Singapore. You know, it's got ritzy skyscrapers, colour on the streets. But the twist in this story is that both these cities actually occupy the same location. Or rather, both these cities are so intertwined with each other. Cities of one, uh, streets of one run next to streets of the other. And amongst these cities, there are some locations where the citizens of both like, kind of cross paths. But even in these locations where they mingle, uh, the citizens speak a different language and they're actually trained to not talk to the citizens of the other city. You see, even though these cities are so intertwined, they may as well be on different continents. Uh, travel between them requires a passport and some, some training. And the values of both these cities is vastly different. Betzel has a national state religion where Alcoma is undoubtedly secular. The people in Alcoma look down on the people in Betzel as, as backward and old-fashioned. You may have guessed this isn't just something that I've come up with. Uh, this story comes from the novel uh, called The City and the City. It's, a, it's a quite a famous novel. And I reckon this story of the two cities is very similar to how Christians experience life today. We feel like we're in a different city to the secular world that weaves all around us. We occupy the same space, but what we think and how we live are often at odds with the world around us. We mingle with those whose view of history of where it's coming, where it's come from and where it's going is so different. We, you know, live and do life alongside people whose worldview is often hostile or opposed to our own. And I think it can be very easy to feel like the citizens of Betzel, to feel tired, to feel worn out, to feel like you're on the wrong side of history. Feel like we're, we're living in the past, holding on to things that we should just let go of. While the offer of the world says freedom and flourishing is there for you. I wonder, do you feel this struggle? I wonder, do you feel the tension of living for God in a world that says it's just foolish? Because if you do, you're in good company. The psalmist knows this feeling all too well. All throughout the psalm, he longs to walk God's way. He knows that it's the way to blessing. He knows that it's the way to life. But he faces this fierce opposition. He, he faces opposition from the world around him. Have a look at a few of these verses. There's countless ones of them. But verse 61 says, Though the cords of your wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your word. Or verse 170 says, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Or verse 153, he says, Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. For the psalmist, his life often seems to be hanging in the balance. The wicked, the world around him is is closing in. And how does he respond? Where does he turn? I wonder, how do you respond when, you know, you feel opposition? Well, he doesn't give in to despair. He doesn't shake his fist at the state of the world. 
He doesn't compromise in his trust of God. And he doesn't like just withdraw to the people who hold the same view as him. What did he say over and over again? He turns to God's word. He knows that uh, he needs to not forget it. He knows that that is the foundation for his life. He knows that's the thing that's actually going to carry him through. So that's where he turns. So the question for us to ponder this morning is, how do we live as Christians in a world that says, that's just foolish? And the psalmist, he's going to say two things. It's by seeing the wonder in the word and the hope we have in it. Uh, This third stanza, like most of the stanzas throughout, it breaks neatly into two sections. We see in verse 17 to 20, the wonder of the word, and then verses 21 to 24, the hope in the word. So first, let's dig into that first section, the wonder of the word. Read with me again, verse 17 and 18. He says, Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. It's an incredible prayer, isn't it? The psalmist, like other points in the psalm, he he turns to God desperately for God uh, he turns to God desperately in prayer for God to change him. And what's the, what's the prayer for his life there? Well, he says in, in verse 17, literally it says, Deal generously with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. You see, the, the psalmist appeals to God's charity. He says, Show your loving kindness and generosity to me, that I may live. And I think what's striking is, why does he want to live? What does he see as the purpose of his life? What does he say there? It's so that he can walk in the word. It's so that he can continue to walk in his relationship with God. That's his desire for life. John Piper states this about these verses. He says, The whole goal of the psalmist's life, it seems, was just that God would let him keep on breathing and living so that he could be on about the word. I wonder, what would you say is is the goal of your life? That's the psalmist's goal. And how does he want God to to deal generously with him? Well, it's not just by letting him keep on breathing, but did you see what else he asked for in verse 18? He pleads with God. He says, open my eyes to see the wonders found in your law. It's helpful to remember here the word law. It doesn't mean a list of do's and don'ts. It's not just a list of rules. For the psalmist, the word he uses there for the word law is actually the word Torah. And when he uses that, he's thinking about the first five books of the Bible. And in those first five books of the Bible, it shows how God has worked to establish his relationship with his people. They show how God took the initiative to rescue and bring a people to himself to be his own treasured possession. And so the psalmist, he's saying, I want to gaze in wonder at that. I want to gaze in wonder at how you have worked to bring a people to yourself. I wonder what, what things do you gaze at? In wonder. For me, nothing beats being up on top of a mountain and gazing out. Earlier this year, I went for a a run and a hike up um, Mount Taranaki in in New Plymouth. And I remember starting out, it was an early morning at the information centre and there was fog, couldn't see the mountain above me. And I just, you know, started trudging my way through the forest, uh, you know, not really knowing what I'm going to see. Uh, two hours of, you know, up and up and up through this forest, winding my way. Eventually, uh, at 2,000 metres, I turned round. The fog was below me and I could gaze in wonder at the mountain and the fields below. 
You see, when I was in the fog, I couldn't imagine the view above me. But once it had been lifted and I stood on the edge of the mountain, I could fully see the wonder of the landscape. It was incredible and it took my breath away. The psalmist here, he's saying he wants to have his breath taken away by the wonders of God. He wants to have the veil lifted from his eyes so that he can fully behold how God has worked to bring him into a relationship. What wonders does the psalmist want to see and grasp? Well, in his mind, he's thinking about the wondrous acts of God rescuing his people out of Egypt, how God had provided for them and protected for them in the wilderness. He's thinking about God had, how he'd worked his mighty power and acted out of love to save his people and bring them to himself. The psalmist desperately prays for this. He wants his eyes to be open to grasp and behold what God has done. He wants this because he knows the God who rescued him in the past is the same God he's crying out to. You see, the psalmist's desire here is not just to read any old amazing thing in the Bible. No, he wants to behold God's steadfast love towards him. He wants to gaze in wonder at God's initiating love. And so he desperately prays to God to do this. He prays to God because he knows, left to himself, he's, he's prone to wander. He knows he'll gaze at other things. He knows that his, his attention will be vital for other things. He knows that he'll look at other things in wonder rather than what God has done. He knows without God opening his eyes, he's blind to see the power and love of God's incredible rescue. He knows he's blind to God's grace towards him. And so he passionately prays, Open my eyes, God. May I gaze in wonder at what you've done. May I see the relationship you've brought me into. I wonder, is that a prayer you pray? Do you pray that God would open your eyes to see and behold the wondrous things he's done in his word? Do you pray, God, take my breath away as I read your word? See, the psalmist here, I think, shows us helpfully the manner in which we approach the word matters. It's why before we read the word, we, we pray. See, it's not just an empty formality or ritual, but we recognize without God opening our eyes, we won't see, we won't understand, we won't grasp the wonder and worth and weight of what he's done. It's why the psalmist all throughout Psalm 119, he says, teach me God, teach me, teach me. He's urging God to teach him, to take his heart. George Whitfield, the, the great 18th century pastor and preacher, uh, he wrote this in his own personal journey, he, journal. He said, I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knees, laying aside all other books and praying over it. If possible, every line and word... This proved meat and drink indeed to my soul. I daily received fresh life, light and power from above. How we approach God's word matters. We're to approach God's word humbly, prayerfully for God to reveal his wonders in it. We're never to approach the Bible arrogantly thinking, I've read this passage ten times before. I know exactly what it's going to say. I'm not going to get anything out of it. We're to pray urgently with our Bibles open. God, help me gaze in wonder at everything you've done. 
Help me to see your steadfast love and grace. So this is the psalmist's prayer for his life. And he deeply longs for this. We see this picked up in, in 19 to 20 as he says, Do not hide your commands from me. Or he says, My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all time. He says, God, help me to grasp what you've done. And why does the psalmist long to have his eyes open? Why does he desperately want God to do this? Well, the second half of the psalm uh, shows us he urgently wants to grasp the wonders of God because he knows in the word is his hope. The psalmist declares in verse 19, he says, I'm a stranger on earth. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I feel alone. I am walking this path for God and the world around me is going the other way. I'm the only one who seems to be going your way, God. He feels this hostility and pressure all around him and he knows the thing that's going to get him through is holding on to God's word. We see a bit of the, this pressure and the, the world around him in verse, uh, in verse 21 there. Have a look at it. It says, uh, You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and who stray from your commands. Countless times in the Psalms, uh, the psalmist faces hostility from the world around him. And did you notice the three characteristics here of those in the world? They're proud, under God, they're cursed, and they don't walk in the word. This, this is the picture of our world. Anyone who doesn't walk in God's word is living in direct opposition to it. And those who do walk in it, they will inevitably be at odds with the world around them. This is you know, how it's been for Christians throughout the ages. Those who've held on to the word faithfully and steadfastly, they've faced opposition, they've faced pain, they've faced persecution, and they've faced death for holding on to God's word. And the psalmist here, he feels this pain. He cries out to God. You see it there in verse 22. He says, Remove from me their scorn and their contempt. You see, the psalmist knows what it's like to be swimming against the tide of the world. He knows what it's like to, to feel like you're the only one who's walking God's way. He knows what it's like to be told, you don't really believe all that God stuff, do you? He knows what it's like to feel the cold shoulder, to be left out. The psalmist feels this pain. He feels this pressure. And where does he find his hope? Where does he find his security? Well, he doesn't wallow about in self-pity. He doesn't let his waking moments be dominated by the threats of those around him. Now he says in, in verse 23 and 24, he says, Though rulers sit and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counsellors. See, the psalmist, he runs. Where does he run? It's to God's word. He runs there because it points him to his God. The word is his secure hope because it points him to the God who has been faithful. Have a look at uh, a few of these verses uh, throughout the rest of the psalm. There's countless ones of them where the psalmist speaks of his confidence in God's faithfulness. Have a look at, at verse 41 with me. He says, May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Or verse 89 and 90, he said, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. Or verse 114, he says, You are my refuge and shield. I have put my hope in your word. I wonder where do you 
run to for comfort and hope, when the, when the pressure of the world gets too much? Where does our world say we should put our, uh, our hope and security? Well, our world says, you know, we should run to our career, doesn't it? That's going to provide some lasting hope and security. Our world says, build up that bank balance. That'll provide hope. It says, you know, find that special someone, invest in that relationship. That's going to provide hope that's going to last. Our world says, study hard, get a good job, do well at uni, do, get your good grades. That's actually going to provide some lasting hope and security. I wonder which ones are those, or whatever it is for you, what are you tempted to put your hope in? For the comedian Jim Carrey, he, he listened to the voice of the world, and you know where it led him? He came to this realisation. He said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they have dreamed of, so they can see it's not the answer. Our world says hope and comfort can be found in circumstances. But the psalmist wants us to see that our only hope, the only hope that we can have can be found in God's word. That is where secure and lasting hope is found. See, the psalmist runs to the word above everything else because he's convinced it can't be snatched away from him. God hasn't failed him in the past and he's confident he won't in the future. And so the psalmist, despite this pressure, and opposition and this pain he feels, he keeps gazing at the wonder in God's word and he walks with it as the hope in his life. That's what's going to get him through. So how do we live as Christians in a world that says it's foolish? Well, it's by seeing the wonder of the word and the secure hope the word provides. So let me ask you, have you come to see the wonder and the beauty of the word that became flesh. Dave referred to it before in John chapter 1. The word became flesh. Jesus came to earth to die on a cross for us. Have you come to gaze in wonder at that? 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Do you see what that verse is saying? We were all running our own race. We were all walking in the path of the world. But then God, he took the initiative. He sent Jesus to die for our sins, to die in our place, to rescue us from our sins, to bring us to God, to bring us into a relationship with God, to be his people. Have you come to gaze in wonder at that truth? Does Jesus dying in your place for your sin, does that just blow your mind? Does that take your breath away? You see, the psalmist, he looked back at the Torah. He looked back at the Exodus and God's rescue of his people. And he wanted to gaze in wonder at that. How much more ought we to gaze in wonder at God sending his only son to die for us on a cross? I wonder when was the last time you just stopped and meditated on that truth. When was the last time you didn't brush over it? You didn't think I've heard it before, but you stopped to think about the magnitude of God coming as a man to earth to die for you. Maybe there's some of you here this morning and you've never understood how Jesus coming to die on a cross. How is that good news? 
Maybe you're someone who actually thinks, yeah, the Bible, it's just foolish. Well, maybe this morning, let me encourage you. Maybe you could just start by praying. Open my eyes, God. Open my eyes that I may see the wonder of Jesus dying for me. And for those of us here this morning who do know that truth, who have come to gaze in wonder at it, let me ask you, is God's word your secure hope? Is that where you turn to for comfort and joy and peace? Do you turn to it to take away your fears and anxieties about life? Is it where you go when you feel all alone? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and, uh, verse 3 and 4 says this. It says, Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Do you see what this verse is saying? We have a glorious future hope because of what Jesus has done. And this hope is a sure reality. Do you see the end of that verse? It's been kept in heaven for us. See, all our flows, all our hopes flow out of the death of Jesus. We can look back at Jesus' death for us and see that he brings us into a relationship with him. We can see him dying and rising again and we can look forward and see our future heaven reality secure and kept for us. Jesus' death has secured it. So now we can live life confidently as we wait to be taken home. We can live lives gazing at the wonder of what Jesus has done and holding on to that secure hope his word gives us. This idea reminds me of a verse from an old hymn which is titled, Turn My Eyes Upon Jesus. And the chorus, it goes like this. It says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May that be the prayer for our lives. That we'd continue to gaze at the wonder of Jesus. And that life in this world will grow strangely dim in light of the glorious hope we have in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the wonder and the hope that can only be found in it. Open our eyes, Lord, to see how incredible your word is. Open our eyes to see the wonder of Jesus. God as a man coming to earth to die and rise to bring us to you. To give us a hope that can never perish, spoil or fade. To give us hope of life eternal. May we gaze in wonder. And may we live lives holding on to the hope we have in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.